The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Matthew 2, 13. The flight to Egypt. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. That was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It is good to be in this place this morning as we prepare for the celebration of our Lord's birth uh, this coming Wednesday. Uh, It's been somewhat of a march through December uh, to this point, and I hope this morning that we will um, gain a deeper understanding of Advent. But what I'm doing this morning is a little different. Um, we're looking at two different passages, but I'm not preaching those passages exegetically. In other words, we're not going verse by verse. But what I want us to see is the contrast of the announcement of Jesus. Uh, Behold, a child is born. Uh, A light has dawned uh, that is illuminating the darkest of the darkness. Uh, This child who is born will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But then we go to Matthew 2, and we see that there was anything but peace. We see that the coming Lord Jesus brought hostility of the most unthinkable way. We don't know how many children were murdered because of the threat that Herod felt by the birth of this newborn king. But we know that Though there was rejoicing by the wise men, though we know there's rejoicing by the shepherds, there was anything but by Herod. And that is the tension that we live within because the coming of the Lord Jesus, his first coming, Advent, is not the final story. It's not the end of the narrative. It is another progression that is marching toward the conclusive ending of the second coming of Jesus. And the church... Uh, has historically focused on the second coming of Christ, but along the way, especially the evangelical church, lost that. And I think it leaves us in confusion of going, oh, where's this light? This light is dawn. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Why is my life the way it is? Why is my heart hurting? Why does this time of year bring more darkness than light sometimes? And that's the tension that I want us to focus in, the tension that reading Isaiah 9 and and hearing Matthew 2 together really ushers us into. Uh, So as we do that, and before we do that, let's pray and ask God's illuminating um, work in our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you that you are a God that indeed has sent the light. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And he is one who is full of grace and truth. That is your glory, Lord Jesus. And I pray this morning that our hearts would be stirred to the reality of your kingdom. The reality of a kingdom that seems so weak and at times feels so wrong and yet is truth itself. I pray, oh God, that you would make us weak that you would give us a longing to live out of the weakness of your kingdom reign in our own hearts and in this world. I pray, O oh God, that you would open our eyes to show us that your kingdom values and your kingdom principles are so different from the driving passions and goals and desires of our own hearts and lives. Father, would you stop us in our tracks by the incarnation this morning? May we see that it's not just some cute little photo op, some cute little selfie op, some cute little scene that we can place on our hearth and adore during a Christmas Eve. But, oh God, I pray that you would show us that the incarnation is the very heart and nature and heartbeat of the kingdom life. That, oh God, you've called us down to a greater life. You have freed us by the power of the resurrected Jesus to live weak and not have to be strong and beautiful and healthy and whole. Because, Lord Jesus, you are all of those for us. God, show us, teach us, be present with us, we beg. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, this morning, I want us to understand that Jesus as King, the one upon whose shoulders the government will rest is the greatest threat to everyone in this room and everyone in this world. Jesus as king is a threat in the most threatening kind of way. He threatens everything, anything and everything, and there's nothing off limits. Everything we look to for identity, purpose, self-worth, he calls us to deny that we might replace that with him because he is the source of life. He is the way, the truth of the life. He is not a teacher that points the way. He is the way. He's the fulfillment of the kingdom because he is the king. Every treasure on earth must be replaced with the treasure that is Jesus. King Jesus threatens Everything in your life, your sex, your money, your beauty, your comfort, your security. He threatens your freedom to decide what is right and wrong. Yes, he even threatens your choice of who to love. For he tells you to love your enemy. He tells you to love those who persecute you and spitefully use you. He, he demands that you push toward the one that you are most repulsed by. He refuses to bless your agenda, and he equally refuses to share the specifics of his agenda. Under his rule, the way up is the way down. It's in losing your life and your rights and your comfort and your security that you find life. It's in following him, not him blessing your already set plans that we find life. This is what the Advent says. And dear friends, he is not threatened by our opposition nor our skepticism or even outright disagreement. He does not cower nor have any need to gain your support 
or even the collective support of the group, even the church. For he is God, and as God, he doesn't need our support. Yet to know him, to be his, you must follow him. You must love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He holds control over you, and thus he is a threat in the most threatening sort of way. Friends, just talk to Richard Bush if you don't believe that. Do you know the life he's lived over the last four, five, six, seven years? Do you understand that he has been locked in his home? He has been strapped to an oxygen tank. And he has spent his time studying God's word, praying through the night. He, he, wake up, he wakes up in the middle of the night sometimes because the, the, uh, the cord to his oxygen tank um, um, is crimped. And he wakes up in a panic because he's been for a while not breathing. And yet he gets, finally gets two new lungs and he experiences life like he hasn't experienced in a long time. He gets to go out with his wife. He goes to the Nutcracker, one of their oldest traditions. He takes her on a date, which they haven't been on in years. And yet he texts me yesterday and said, Richard, pray for us. Because it seems as if my body is rejecting these lungs. This is a child of God. A light has dawned. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. But he doesn't give us in this life what we most deserve. He gives us what we most need. And that is himself. If you don't believe that, ask Lisa Conrad. Her mother with cancer. Since last March, or March of 2018, she has cared for her. She has poured into her. She has sacrificially and selfishly cared for her mom, especially over the last three weeks, where her mom could do literally nothing for herself. She could not go to the bathroom. She could not eat for herself. Because of her Alzheimer's, uh, she could not think for herself. She literally had to sleep in the same bed for fear that her mother would get out and, and, and wander off, which she did one night. She called me the night before her mother died, and she was at the end of her rope. She was being threatened, pouring, living this kingdom life, living as God calls us to live, not thinking about self, but thinking about another, loving as she would want someone to love her in that situation. And she literally was at the point of an emotional breakdown. She had given so much. And what is her reward? What is the light that has dawned the death of her mother the next morning? And where there's mercy in that, dear friends, there's a void now. <laughs> there's a void now. There's grief now. Because all of that investment creates even more attachment and more love and more devotion. And this is the kingdom economy. To follow Jesus as king, I mean to really follow and trust him, is to live by faith and not sight. If we think, if we're looking for markers in this life to, to help us hold on, we have to know that the only marker that we really have is Jesus. He's the only one that can give us the life that we so need. Just ask the new mothers in Bethlehem. Herod didn't get his way. And what did he do? He demanded, he used his power to direct his armies 
to take all of the two-year-old babies out of the arms of their mothers and under and murder them in their sight. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine if an army came in this morning and took the babies out of our nursery and killed them in front of us? Can you imagine the lamentation? Can you imagine the weeping? Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. You can't comfort a mother in that situation. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do because they are no more. And friends, note, if you, if you go to this passage in, in, in uh, Matthew 2, it says, and as the prophecy of Jeremiah states. Did you hear that? This is not some isolated evil act of a king. This is in fulfillment of the prophecy of God. You can't say, well, God had nothing to do with that. This was in fulfillment of the prophecy of God. Oh, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven clash, and it is real. But friends, we have to understand this reality, because if we don't, if we think that Isaiah 9, if we think this wonderful counselor that, that, that upon whose shoulders the government rests, that, that he is tangibly present in the way that he will be someday, if we get those two confused, then we are going to give up. We're going to give up on this faith. When, when hard things happen, when the unthinkable comes, when, when the thorn in the flesh is there and God refuses to take it away, we are going to give up unless we understand that Jesus is the prize. Not in some cruel way, but because he is the life that we long for. He is everything that we desire. He is it. But oh dear friends, we have to understand that this beautiful Savior understands because he took on our flesh. The, the, the omnipotent became vulnerable. The, the God himself took on flesh and the very straw upon which he was laid in the manger, he was holding the molecules together while lying there. And he did it so that now he can empathize with your weakness. He has cried our tears. He has felt our pain. He has been falsely accused, convicted, tried, convicted, sent to a cross. He's been spit upon. He's been stripped naked. He's been publicly humiliated. He has experienced death for you and me so that he might be a faithful and good and empathetic high priest. Friends, the advent of Jesus shows us so much, and it's, it's not about cuteness and niceness. It's about a God who got down into our flesh that we might know that though this world will hate us, though this life will not work out according to our plans, desires, and agendas, even our good desires and our good plans, our righteous desires, our righteous plans, that we have one that will be with us and for us. We will have one that understands 
And we have one who is coming again. And friends, the the way that he came the first time and the nature of his kingdom informs the coming kingdom. And I want us to understand that today too. So as we consider these two passages, as we understand the themes and we we unpack some of the themes of these two passages, um, I, I want us to understand the nature of the kingdom. I want us to understand the power of the nature of the kingdom. And then I want us to understand the nature of the coming kingdom. So let's, let's get to work. First of all, Jesus' first coming reveals the weak nature of our king's kingdom. The, the weak nature of our king's kingdom. If, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 4, Isaiah is prophesying uh, that this great child that, that will come, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And he said, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, what is he talking about there, this day of Midian? Um, his audience would have known immediately, but we, we're like, okay, that, whatever. That's just biblical language that has nothing to do with me. Oh, listen to the story. You see, the, the child to come will break the rod of his oppressor as God did on the day of Midian. How did God break the rod of, of Israel's oppressor on the day of Midian? He sent the weakest of the weak, uh, this guy by the name of Gideon, to, to use as an instrument of salvation for Israel. And, and this is what he told, uh, he told Gideon. He said, Gideon, your captors, the Midianites, those that, that you've been digging caves to hide from, you've been digging holes in the ground to get away from, those that have been oppressing you and marginalizing you and, and heaping all kinds of injustice upon you, uh, this is what I want you to do. I want you to raise up an army. And so Gideon goes to Israel and says, God is giving us the, 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 you know, the, uh, the command to fight. Who wants to fight? 32,000 uh, volunteer to fight. And um, the, the army of the Midianites is probably 50,000, maybe a little over. And so God comes to Gideon and says, he doesn't say, great job. He says, oh, that's too many. So we got to whittle this down a little bit. And so he says, tell them, you know, okay, who doesn't really want, who's not really in the fight? Who does not really want to fight? And 22,000 said, oh, that would be me. Uh, And so 22,000 go home, and so they're 10,000. And God, I mean, 10 against, you know, 50, I mean, that's, you know, five to one odds. And yet, what does God do? Uh, That's still too many. And he said, so have them all go to the water, have them all go to the river, and whoever leans over, gets on their knees, and drinks like a dog, you tell them to go home. And I would have to say, for good reason. I mean, come on. You don't want those kind of guys watching your back. That leaves 300. 300. 300 against 50 to 53,000. And do you see what God is doing? And then he, then he doesn't say, okay, let's spend six weeks at boot camp learning how to use a sword and... No, what does he do? He says, take a trumpet, uh, a torch, and a glass jar. And here's, what's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, break into three groups of 100. The Midianites are in a valley, so I want you, you know, uh, those three groups of 100 surround the valley and, um, you know, upon demand, start blowing the trumpet, lighting the torch, and breaking the glass and yelling like idiots. The sword, the sword, you know. Here, yeah. 
And that's what they do. And the Midianites are so confounded, they're so confused, it's dark, it's the middle of the night, and they see, you know, flashes of light, and they hear crack, you know, glass cracking and trumpets blowing, and they're like, oh, we're, you know, we're in trouble, and so they just start hitting anybody near them, and they, kill, they all kill themselves. It, it's hilarious. And yet, what is God doing? God refused to give the Midianites over to Israel until the odds were utterly, if not conclusively, against them. He took them to the point of, but God. <laughs> he took them to a point of real weakness. And what we see from the rest of Scripture is that this is not some isolated story, but this is the norm and the way of the kingdom of God. See, God will fight for us, but we must trust him to do so. The way of the kingdom is victory through weakness, humiliation, and suffering. God defeats Israel's pride in the manner in which he gives them victory over their enemies. Yet in doing so, he gives them confidence in him. You see what God was doing? He made two defeats that night. It wasn't just the the defeat of the Midianites. It was the defeat of the pride and the skepticism and the unbelief of Israel. Because there was no way that little army of 300, well, maybe some way, because our pride is pretty strong, but, I mean, come on, 300 against 53,000, at least in that moment, maybe the tale grew larger when they told their children later in later generations, you know, how brave they were and how strong they were. But in that moment, there was no doubt in their minds the victory is because of the Lord. And friends, that's where God has us in life. What are you facing that you know you can't and will not defeat? Oh, the victory can be the Lord's, but you have to trust Him. Don't give up. This is the way of the kingdom. This is how He works because He needs to do as much in you as He's going to do through you. He's not, he does not need us. He doesn't need preachers. He doesn't need servants of God. He doesn't need, he doesn't need you. But he uses you, and he uses me, and he calls us to trust him. And through our weakness and through our humility and our humbling, he creates his power. This is the way of our salvation. Listen, 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your call. In other words, consider how you came to faith in Jesus. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That's an understatement. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You see, he has a strategy. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is no better place to see the weakness of God's kingdom than in the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus taking on flesh, becoming an infant, being utterly dependent. Is anybody in here facing a situation in which you feel utterly dependent 
Let me tell you something. That is the most hopeful place to be. It's the most uncomfortable. It, it feels at times like someone is ripping your flesh off because we love control. We love predictability. We want to see tomorrow. We want to know how it works out. But let me tell you something. Jesus was really not vulnerable because he was not really in the arms of Mary and Joseph. He was in the arms of his heavenly Father. And friends, that's the safest place to be. It's in the arms of our God, boasting in Him, walking by faith and not sight. That's what Paul means. I rejoice that I can share in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because when I'm being put to death, Jesus is coming alive in me. That's the way of the kingdom. And there's no other way around it. He's not asleep. He's not cruel. Parentheses of kingdom living, that is the heart of kingdom living. If you don't feel weak or if you feel like God is pursuing you to a point of weakness, receive it. Receive it. Don't fight against it. And don't make the, the, the critical error in, in theology and think that in some way he is against you. Oh, no, he is for you. He is seeking to defeat your pride so that he can give you himself. The only thing that keeps us back from him is our pride, is our arrogance, is our self-righteousness. Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Do you know how I, I, I've been praying for wisdom since I was a teenager. When I read um, um, the, um, uh, my goodness, I just went totally blank. Um, I've got in my mind Proverbs. I had in my mind parables. Wow. I was thinking, I, can't, I couldn't get past it. I was like, parables, parables. No, it's not parables, Proverbs. <laughs> wow. Um, I need more sleep, obviously. Uh, you know, um, Solomon, or God through uh, Solomon tells us to seek wisdom, to cry out for it. And I'm telling you, I mean, every now and then I'll come up with something that sounds wise, but I'm like, ah, just give me some C.S. Lewis wisdom. Let me write like that, you know. No, no. That's not how God, he, he gives us one or two in a generation, in a couple of hundred years. Um, but no, that's not how he works. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. To be a kingdom citizen demands boasting in the Lord and not in what the Lord can do for you. Dear friends, do you know that God? Is that your heart? Is that your greatest desire and hunger? Not beauty, not your body, not money, not your intellect, not your wokeness, but Jesus. And then secondly, that I want us to see the surprising strength that when we begin to live in that, when the church becomes this, when we begin to move as weak men and women toward me, Went weak men and women. As we are about, that's the whole foundation of justice for the oppressed and, and being about the poor and the marginalized among us. 
It's we are weak. We don't go as strong and healthy people to, that's called charity, and that's what the church mistakes for, um, gospel justice and gospel mercy. And it has, it's, it's horrible. It's wretched because it's rooted in pride and self-righteousness. But no, when we see ourselves as weak, when we are beaten down and broken and our only boast is in the Lord, then we have something to give other people. People don't ultimately need money. They need Jesus. <laughs> I mean, do we need to meet the physical? Yeah, you hear what I'm saying. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. What people need is Jesus. And unfortunately, typically in, in the church today, we give people more physical things than we do Jesus. Well, let's look at, uh, I think I started point one again. I mean, we better get to point two, the surprising strength of weakness. Um, this is the upside-down kingdom kind of thinking, but there is power in weakness. Um, Rachel and I went to see the, the movie, uh, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers story, and it was unlike the documentary. Uh, the documentary is about his life and is really good, but this was a story, and really, it was the, the kingdom perspective of Mr. Rogers and how he used that to influence a very angry, um, wounded, skeptical reporter. Um, he, there were a lot of people clamoring to write his story uh, back in the day. I mean, he was kind of the hot thing. And instead of choosing somebody that he thought would make him look the best, he chose someone that, that it, you know, typically is known for their snarkiness and, you know, their, their uh, kind of arrogance and skepticism. And he chose him. And, and he did so because he felt like this guy needed him, that he could have an impact in his life. And so over time... He loved this guy. He prayed for this guy. They have him in the movie praying uh, for this guy. He deals with this guy's uh, relationship, broken relationship with his father. And he's killing him with kindness. He's killing him with love. He is killing him with patience. He's killing him with concern. And by the end of the movie, the guy finally breaks and moves toward his father. It's a powerful story. I'll be honest with you, it's not the greatest movie. Uh, I kind of hate that I paid $14 to go see it, but for this sermon, in terms of a kingdom, I mean, and, and that's kind of the point. Kingdom living, it doesn't make a good feature film. It's not what we want, but oh, it's the best story because kindness and love and the willingness to say, I will risk my career, I will risk my, my, my future uh, you know, uh, reputation and money. Uh, which that's what Mr. Rogers did, choosing this guy to write the story, uh, because that's not my value. My value is people. So good. And that's what Christ has done for us. For God to be poor and physically non-impressive, if not unattractive, that's what Isaiah 53 says, nothing in him that would draw us to him. Non-attention-seeking, humble, rejected, judged, scorned, beaten, spit upon. For him to be hated, despised, publicly humiliated. For him to be taken to court on false charges. All these things. That shows us his strength. Because what is stronger? The need for beauty and power 
or to be freed from the need for beauty and power. You see, the kingdom strength, kingdom perspective, the kingdom way of living is genuine freedom. This is the glory of a Mother Teresa who gave her entire life to uh, the poorest of the poor in in, uh, Calcutta in India. It's the glory of Dr. King who willingly went to jail, who marched instead of taking a big pulpit somewhere and building his name and writing books that would increase his fame across the nation. No, he came down. He went down, he risked his life, and he gave his life. Isn't that more glorious? That's the kingdom way. It's not just for a Dr. King. It's not just for a Mother Teresa. A Billy Carter, former president, building homes in Uptown. That's crazy. Would you do that as a former president? That's what he's given his life to, and he teaches Sunday school every Sunday in his little church in Georgia. President Obama, look at this picture. He was playing golf this week, and he walked over. He saw this woman with her um, three-month-old baby and came over and just held the baby and kissed the baby, and that made all the headlines. Why? Because strength rarely goes down. Popularity rarely goes down. And when a president goes down, It connects with something deep in our soul, and it's called Christ himself and the kingdom that he's called us to and saved us for. I was talking to Daniel Harris, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about him in my last point, but uh, Daniel, as you know, has um, cerebral palsy. It's it's a brain, it's a um, condition to the brain that keeps his muscles from working uh, as an abled body, and we go back and forth of what words to use uh, he's more able in so many other respects, uh, but abled physically. Um, and yet, Rachel and I went, um, and Whitney and Jed and uh, grandkids, to watch him in um, the uh, Christmas story? That didn't sound right. Christmas Carol, thank you. Um, and um, to see his joy in the midst of what I feel like if I were inflicted with, I would have no joy, shows a specific freedom and a specific power that is unlike any other. And that is the wisdom of this wonderful counselor. He rules and governs by bringing joy to those that should have no joy. Do you see the power of the kingdom? But then thirdly and Shortly, briefly, the incarnation also points to and reveals the nature of the kingdom to come. And this is where I think we're going to, you may have been with me up to this point, but go with me further. The, the incarnation of Jesus was not just for us to, to understand how to live this life. I believe in so many ways it was pointing to the life of glory. And that's not how we think. We think of strength and glory. Uh, We think, you know, if you're a runner, Nate, you know, four-minute mile marathon, three-minute mile marathon, you know, we think of uh, all of, you know, we can have our little proof text and come in. But the nature of the earthly kingdom of of God, I think, is going to be the very nature in, in a real form and fashion of the coming kingdom, and Daniel, I'm going back to Daniel again, helped me tremendously understand this. One day, Daniel and I were talking, 
And I think I may have said something like, Daniel, I can't wait to watch you run in, in heaven or you know, something like that. And he said, Richard, I don't know that my body's going to be different in heaven. And I, I, I said, what, what are you talking about? And I started to rebuke him theologically, you know, bring it all, you know. And he said, well, think about Jesus. He told Thomas, see my hands? You can touch the scar. And I'm telling you, you talk about a paradigm shift. You talk about my world turning on its axis. Uh, that conversation did it. Because what is most freeing? I've really already alluded to it, but what is most freeing? Freeing someone's body that has been inflicted with cerebral palsy or freeing someone from needing to be freed from the physical ailment of, of um, cerebral palsy. Yeah, I told you, nobody's going to clap on that one. <laughs> but you start thinking about that. Is God going to make you rich with money in heaven? Oh, we talk about, oh, he's prepared a house for me in glory. And really, it's really a room, but, you know, in this house are many rooms, but we make it a house in most theology. Or is he going to free you from the need of even needing one? It, it, I mean, look at that. You, 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 the, um, in talking about the resurrection of the dead, and, and you know, people were asking him, well, you know, uh, one guy has about five wives, and um, they all die. Well, which wife is, is he going to have in glory? And Jesus said, oh, wait a minute. You don't understand the kingdom, and you don't understand glory. There's not going to be marrying in heaven. There's going to be something much greater. In this life, we live for that. We live for marriage. We live for fellowship. We live for that union. Oh, but in glory, you're going to have it. It's just not going to be in the manifestation that we have it on this earth. What will it be like, Richard? I have no idea. But will it be much better than anything we can dream or imagine? Absolutely. Do you see? And, and here's the point. We can begin the freedom from the things that we long for now. We can start to live that life now. We, we can start letting go of money and being generous. We can stop thinking about our bodies and, and, and think about even competition. Let me read to you. I know I'm going over, but I, 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 you got to hear this. Isaiah chapter 11, um, verse 6. Here's the coming kingdom. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Okay, that's, that's not this kingdom. I don't know that I want to be led by my children. See, we don't, our values are so distorted, so messed up. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in, in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'll be honest with you. How many of us are really going to start longing for glory if we have nobody to, to beat? If there's no competition? If, if we don't have somebody to look better than? If we don't have people to rule or... If we, you know, if we don't have power and control, and you say, well, well there will be princes and kings. Yeah, but we will be, children will also be princes and kings. So who's the king? 
Who's in charge? That's just it. We're going to be freed from the need to be in charge. All the things that we long for, we're going to be freed from, and it will be fulfilled in Christ. It's hard for us to understand glory with no competition. But that's what it means. There's going to be no war. But that means there's going to be no competition. Has Jesus freed you? Has Jesus freed you to live the kingdom life now? And are you longing with all that you are for the kingdom to come? Dear friends, let the little baby in the manger be the picture of what God is not just calling us to, but what he has set us free to. May our lives be more geared toward the manger than the throne. May, our, may we begin to repent of those things that are keeping us back from living the life of glory now in the present kingdom that Jesus inaugurated with his first coming. And we can spend the rest of our lives fleshing out what that looks like, but may we long for it. May it begin in our hearts, and as a mustard seed, may it grow that the world might know that Jesus is a king unlike any king on this earth. And his people, his children, you and me, are for his kingdom, not about him building ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh, thank you for, for coming, for taking on flesh, for not despising weakness, but exalting it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your kingdom you free us to this very thing. Oh, God. Free us. Free us in our marriages to stop fighting for respect, up fighting for attention. And oh God, I pray that we would just be free to serve. I pray that we would stop demanding what we think we need to be happy in this life. And oh God, we would understand that you're a king that gives us exactly what we need. Father, I pray that we would understand we can trust you Make us more and more like Jesus. Make us more and more like him and his weakness. That his power might be manifested through love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and gentleness. Help us to even desire these things, O oh God. Not power and control and beauty and health and wealth. Oh, God, do that work in your church. May we be a beacon of light in this world, overflowing with love, overflowing with patience, overflowing with kindness, treating our enemies as they don't deserve to be treated, but treating them as you have treated us, that we might win some. Oh, God, would you do that work? Build your kingdom right here through your people in downtown church and in Memphis and so far beyond. We beg you, O oh God, do it for your glory and for your honor. Amen.